This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there, I sentenced you to 10 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. You walked through that door, you was a number. And the inmates understood that. If you're out there, there's a past period. You can hear it, just lay down and do it. Those inmates that were here in the institution during the execution, it had an impression on them that maybe it was still with them to some extent. Maybe they don't think about it anymore, but it, it had a, an impression on them, I'm sure. They wouldn't let me out until we get back to stuff. <laughs> Seven months later, I get back to them. That was one of the, one of the problems we ran into, because you had five or six guys that were sitting in a place smoking a joke and a drink coffee. Pretty quick, they'd hatched a plan in there to... to Get under your skin some way or, or try to figure a way out. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who worked and resided at this institution. My name's Anthony, and I'm chatting with Sky. What's happening, Sky? Oh, not much is happening. Just thriving <laughs> in Sun Valley. Got a couple more weeks, and the leaves are turning, and I'm living my best life. What about oh. you? That's awesome. Hey, same. Just uh, just juggling as many balls as I can right now and uh, loving it. Good. Mostly. Now, <laughs> now update us on your fun Idaho history trip to Creators of the Moon, which we covered oh. last week. Yes. So my wife and I, Becky and I, we uh, went to Cary, Idaho, and we camped out right there at Silver Creek and had the coolest little camp spot by ourselves and then we went to the wild rose hot spring and then of course spent a whole day at craters of the moon and it was a pretty amazing sight i know a lot of people like made me think that it was super dangerous and like don't get lost and all this stuff it's so well maintained who told you that random people as i told them i was going okay maybe they haven't gone in you know 30 years Mm. or something but They definitely made me think that, like, it was very dangerous and uh, (laughs) to look out and all this stuff. And so I, you know, I was like, oh, man, is this 24-pack of bottled water going to be enough to, you know, traverse the desert to look at all these cool rocks? And then I ended up not even finishing a single water bottle because we just drove from, like, one thing to the next. It was very cool, though. I will say they do a very good job of preserving that and... uh, relaying great information on the history of geology and volcanic eruptions in Idaho. It was, that was really cool. Oh, good. Not as dangerous as I was honestly hoping, though. (laughs) Hoping? Okay. You're looking for a bit of danger in your life. You know, I skydived this summer, so everything's just like, you know, I'm on So now, yeah, I was going to say, you got that adrenaline rush, and now you just want more of it. That's why one of the reasons I can never go is I really enjoy my boring (laughs) life. I am getting way too comfortable being home alone on the weekends. I love it. It's so bad. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to get lost at Craters of the Moon. I want to hang out in my sweats and watch TV. (laughs) Yeah, there's some good TV out there. There I, really I is. Golden age of TV, arguably. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Anyway, anyway, how has your week been? What's been going on? I am kind of actually at the end of my like archival research, but since I'm here for a couple Ooh. more weeks, I'll 
go to the library and read some of my secondary sources, and I got to apply for some funding when I go to Los Angeles, so that's a whole thing. This weekend, actually, I had the opportunity to see my little 12-year-old cousin play and win her soccer tournament, um, which I grew up playing soccer. I grew up playing in those tournaments out at Simplot, and uh, it took me back and actually ended up seeing a couple of my old coaches and uh, a good friend I grew up playing with and, and her mom who actually ran the tournament. And so it was a, it was a really fun little Sunday to, to watch my cousin play and, and win and then see all these old people. So it's, it's always oh. good to be back home, you know. Yeah. When I think of soccer, I just think of like, I wonder what Sky's doing. She's kicked the ball around. And all. Listen, World Cup starts in November. I have watched every single game of every single tournament. I love oh international soccer gosh. so much. So my dad and I keep saying it's Christmas soccer. Actually, it's mostly just me. Uh, but it's Christmas <laughs> soccer coming up, and I'm so excited. That's yeah. my uh, my soccer rant. <laughs> <laughs> So maybe, thank you, maybe we should uh, talk about the thing people want to hear from us, which is not soccer, oh, though oh they yeah. should. That's right. They sh- <laughs> I could do a soccer <laughs> podcast if everyone wanted, but no one would want to listen to it. So maybe we should start on the podcast instead. I think so. Who do you have for us today, Sky? So today I am talking about 11233 Stella Wilson. And so her sources, sources that I have for her, are her inmate file, newspapers.com articles, ancestry.com records. And then I went down a massive rabbit hole of the Idaho State Tuberculosis Hospital. So I found a page on that from the asylumprojects.org. I found one of the sources is the 18 U.S. Code 1153 on the Legal Information Institute from the Cornell Law School. And then just a couple Wikipedia pages, the Confederated Tribes of the Colville Reservation and the Major Crimes Act. So, yeah. So Estella Wilson was born on February 6th, 1922 in Lapway, Idaho, on the Nez Perce Indian Reservation. Her parents were Henry E. Wilson and Jeanette Allen Davis, who were both American Indians themselves. And according to Indian census rolls, Henry was part of the Colville tribe and uh, Jeanette was a Nez Perce tribal member. And her father was born in Nespalem, Washington, on the Colville Reservation. And I don't know about you, I had never heard of the Colville Reservation. And that's because it's not just one tribe. It's actually the home of the Confederated Tribes of the Colville Reservation. And the Confederated Tribes consist of 12 individual tribes, including individual Nez Perce tribes and Colville tribes. So the Colville is a tribe in themselves, but there are 12 tribes who now all reside on this reservation. And as we know, the Nez Perce also live on the Nez Perce reservation as well. It probably depends on the band that you're a part of um, and, and your family and things like that. So Henry, her father, was, quote, well-read and was an Indian interpreter for the tribe when they had business in Washington, D.C., end quote. So her father does seem to be a fairly big tribal member, um, important and and traveled uh, quite a bit on behalf of his tribe. So Estella was the only child of Henry and Jeanette. Henry was married once before, and he had one son named Thomas. Jeanette had been married three times before and had three daughters from these marriages. 
So for the first few years of her life, Estella lived on the Nez Perce Reservation with an older half-sister, Elizabeth, and her mother. As far as I could tell, Elizabeth is the only half-sibling that she was raised with. She didn't seem to be raised with anyone else. And Henry is first listed as living with the family in the 1926 Indian census rolls. This census notes that he is a, quote, Colville Alati, end quote. So I'm wondering if he maybe lived on the Colville Reservation the majority of the time and visited occasionally. And and as we saw in that earlier quote, he did travel to DC if the tribe needed him to. So he may have just kind of been in and out mm-hmm. in the in the first few years of Estella's life because Henry is never listed as living on the Nez Perce Reservation with the rest of the family. So sadly, Jeanette died on January 2nd, 1927, when Estella was just three years old from myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart, and Jeanette was just 38 years old herself. So in 1928 and the 1930 Indian census rolls, Estella is living with Elizabeth and her maternal grandparents, James and Emma Allen Hines. By 1933, she is living with an aunt named Annie Miller, and Estella would stay with Annie for the rest of her youth. So there's a little bit of confusion as to Annie's relationship with Estella. So the census rolls say that Annie is Estella's grandmother, but Estella herself, when she talks about her past, describes Annie as an aunt. And so on a scouring of available census records and Indian census rolls, it seems like it's possible that Annie was actually Estella's step-grandmother because Henry's father, so Estella's paternal grandfather, Luke, married a woman named Annie when Henry was a teenager. But I couldn't find any records that directly connect Annie Wilson to this same Annie Miller. So I can't say for certain, you know, what quote unquote blood relationship and they have. And, and that perhaps is a, a Western way of, of thinking, a European way of thinking about family because uh, indigenous familial relationships are, are often different than ours. And so sort of regardless of their familial relationship, either in terms of, of Western terms or indigenous terms, Annie Miller had her own income and, quote, provided well for Estella, but gave strict discipline. She says she was reared without any siblings in the home, and at times it was rather lonesome with very few in the home, end quote. So even though I said that she stayed with Annie for the rest of her youth, the rest of her youth doesn't really last for very many years because she dropped out of school after eighth grade. And on March 10th, 1935, she married Antoine Brancheau, who is another member of the Nez Perce tribe. And they married in Asseton, Washington. Now, Antoine is 27 years old. And if you are better at doing math than I am on the fly, if you do your math, you will find that Estella is 14 years old when she married And I listened to a podcast called Queen's Podcast, and they have some very funny phrases. And one of the quotes that they say constantly, which I feel applies in this particular case, is, babies don't need husbands. Estella is just a baby. She doesn't need a husband. And so they married March 1935. Their first child, Manuel Brancho, was born in May 1937. And so Estella, when she gives birth, is 16. And again, from the Queen's podcast, babies don't need husbands, babies don't need babies. So she's very young. Um, and then her second child, Jeanette Brancho, was born in March 1939. So four years after they married. And again, uh, Estella is at least 18, but it is... 
wild that she is 18 and already has two kids. So the timeline of Estella and Antoine's marriage and relationship is a bit unclear. So let me try to explain everything as best I can. Hopefully it makes sense. But this is, again, sometimes just what happens when records aren't clear. According to Estella's own memory, or what she told prison officials after she was incarcerated, she and Antoine got a tribal divorce in 1939, and in March of that same year, which, if you recall, is actually when her second child was born, she married another man named Jonathan Hines. However, the 1940 census places Estella in Nespalem, Washington, living with her two kids and her father and stepmother. So... She should, if her memory serves correctly, should be living with Jonathan Hines. Then, Antoine's World War II draft card from 1942 lists Stella as his wife living in Spalding, Idaho, but according to her, they had been divorced for three years. Then, on top of all of that, Jonathan Hines, who is her alleged second husband, was listed in the 1940 census as still married to his first wife, Margaret Broncho Hines, who I think to make, you know, confuse this even more, is Antoine's younger sister. And Jonathan Hines' draft card from 1940 lists his next of kin as Rose Axtell, who is his cousin, rather than either of his wives, Margaret or Estella. But supposedly, Estella and Jonathan's first child, Christine, was born in 1940 or early 1941. So, with all of that said... All I can say for certainty is that some point between 1939 and 1942, Estella and Antoine were divorced, and Estella married Jonathan Hines. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so it, like... This, Not confusing at Yeah, all. no, 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 no. And the census record, the, all the records make it perfectly clear. Mm -hmm. So as I said, their first daughter, Christine, was born in 1940 or 1941. Their son, John Nathan, was born in November 1942. Their third child, Gloria Jean, was born around 1944 and 1945, and their fourth child, William Jonathan, was born around 1949. Per a document in her inmate file, quote, she did not raise her children much and left them abandoned many times to the extent that they were reared by others, end quote. In December 1949, around or after her son William was born, Estella was arrested for the very first time in Caldwell, Idaho, on a drunk charge. And I'm not clear as to why she was down in Caldwell. And unfortunately, this is only the beginning of the official record of her troubles with alcohol. And again, this, as we've seen so many times before with so many different inmates, this is going to be a common theme for the next several decades of her life. Mm. So five months later, in April 1950, she is arrested in Nez Perce County for disturbing the peace. In March 1952, she is arrested in Lewiston for drunk driving. She is sentenced to 60 days in jail and fined $200, and she had her driver's license revoked for one year. She ended up serving 23 days, and she paid the fine and was released. Then, in 1952, she has another child, Franklin James Hines. A year and a half to two years later, she had her last child, Floria Jane. So, December 1953, she's arrested in Nez Perce County for child neglect, and I don't know the details about this, but of course, this is always an unfortunate charge, uh, no matter what the details are. Mm -hmm. In both April 1956 and May 1958, she is arrested in Lewiston, again on drunk charges. She was fined $25 on the 1956 charge and fined $20 on the 1958 charge. 
On November 6, 1958, six months after her last arrest for being drunk, she is arrested for negligent driving and fined $25 and sentenced to five days in jail, but she is given a suspended sentence for that. Then, after all of this, on October 26, 1958, Jonathan, her husband, died of tuberculosis at the Idaho State Tuberculosis Hospital in Gooding, Uh Idaho. And he had been suffering from TB for nearly two years before he died. Now, again, to add more confusion to this whole situation, his death certificate said that he was divorced, while Estella claimed that she was married to him up until his death. So, I don't don't quite know what, you know, the, the full story is there. Mm-hmm. However, she did also say, again, these are, this is sort of her memory giving them to prison officials after she's incarcerated. She said that he had died in 1955 rather than in 1959. So it could be that perhaps they separated in 1955, didn't get divorced, or it could just be a matter of faulty memory, perhaps combined with long-term effects of alcohol. As I said, I went down a rabbit hole of the state tuberculosis hospital. Hopefully you find this interesting, which is what I say every single time I do this, but I think I ended up working on it for like a week straight. The first mention of talk of a state tuberculosis hospital appeared in the South Idaho Press from Burley on March 14, 1919, which stated that Idaho's 15th legislature passed HB number 117, quote, providing for construction and operation of two state tuberculosis hospitals, one in North Idaho and one in South, end quote, and allocating nearly $180,000 for building them. The Idaho Republican from Blackfoot stated that salmon had been mentioned as a possible site because salmon had, quote, the driest climate in the state and the most sunshine, end quote, which was considered the best cure for TB at the time. Then begins what I have dubbed the battle for the tuberculosis hospital, and you will see why that is. That is not a battle that I want to hear about. Like, <laughs> oh, God. It, it actually gets far more heated than you would expect over a, a hospital for tuberculosis patients. So here we go. All right. The Idaho Statesman reported in January 1921 that the plans for building two hospitals, along with the funding, had sort of dissipated. And they, first of all, had even decided there was only going to be one hospital instead of two, and they were going to build it in Payette, right next to the Idaho-Oregon border. But eventually, that would not be built there. So the Statesman reported that instead, the legislature was going to use the money on the quote-unquote insane asylums in Orofino and Blackfoot. And as we do know, those do get built. So this idea for two institutions, one in the north and one in the south, was originally for tuberculosis hospitals. Then that got transferred to this idea of of these insane asylums or these, you know, mental health hospitals. Then a month later, actually less than a month later, on February 1st, 1921, the statesman published an article about the members of the state tuberculosis hospital committee who were outraged by the rumors that had been circulating about the bill to abolish the tuberculosis hospitals. The state affairs committee who had abolished the fund for the hospital said, quote, in two years, more than 10% of the sum has been expended or pledged without a bit of construction work, end quote. So in response, the State Tuberculosis Committee released the following statement, quote, Many false statements are being circulated concerning the Tuberculosis Hospital Fund Commission. The facts should be known. 
The commission does not claim to be brilliant, but it does most certainly claim to be honest, if too stupid to know that money left in the state treasury is not safe, although it be a sacred fund for the unfortunate sick of the state. The payette site was donated by the citizens of that town. The truth is that the State Affairs Committee will spend 10% of the total funds in order that the tuberculosis fund may be abolished. It plans to refund $5,000 each to Sandpoint and Payette and pay the architect about $10,000 for non-completion of contract, end quote. So what they're saying there is that the State Affairs Committee came in and said, you guys have been spending all this money, nothing has been built. The State Tuberculosis Committee comes in and says, that's not true. We know that that money does need to be spent, you know, for this hospital, that the Payette site was actually donated. Instead, the State Affairs Committee, who's accusing us of using funds poorly, is now spending their own money to make sure that the tuberculosis hospitals don't get built. So we already have just this battle over these hospitals. So apparently there was enough pushback against that State Affairs Commission that the bill that was supposed to repeal funding for the hospital was killed in late February 1921. So they decide we are going to try to still build these hospitals. After that bill was killed, Governor D.W. Davis appointed a woman named Catherine R. Athey as executive officer of the State Tuberculosis Hospital Commission for the next four years. So the plan at this point is still to try to build the new hospital in Payette, but the road to getting that hospital is still not clear. In May 1922, the statesman reported that the State Tuberculosis Hospital Commission entered into a contract to start drilling wells in Payette, and soon the commission planned to advertise for bids to construct buildings in Payette and Sandpoint. So now we're back to those two hospitals, one in the south in Payette and one in the north in Sandpoint. Then on December 31st, 1922, the statesman reported that Harry K. Fritchman, who represented the Ada County Taxpayers Association, filed a complaint against the State Tuberculosis Hospital Commission, saying that the two chosen sites of Payette and Sandpoint were too far from the center of northern and southern districts, and that the commission did not do its due diligence in choosing the sites, claiming that there were more quote-unquote desirable and centrally located places. So because of this complaint, Judge Raymond L. Givens issued an injunction restraining the commission from proceeding with hospital construction. However, the state Supreme Court reversed that injunction, saying that the site of the hospital was up to the commission's discretion. It was literally part of their job. Quote, in order to state a cause of action, the court says, it would be necessary that the complaint alleged that the commission found that there were two or more locations in each district of substantially equal merit in fulfilling the statutory requirements, but failed and refused to select the site nearest the center of the district, or else that the commission acted in bad faith or abused its discretion, end quote. And that's not what happened, according to the Supreme Court, and so the building was allowed to continue. Then on February 27th, 1923, about two months after that injunction, the statement published a, an article with the title, quote, Senate indefinitely postpones Haley Bill for State Tuberculosis Hospital, end quote. So that seems like it's the end of it. But over the next two years, several fraternal and women's organizations attempted to raise funds to build or buy buildings for a tuberculosis hospital. Finally, in January 1925, the legislature introduced another state tuberculosis hospital bill. Now, there are a few things that are different about this bill. No commission was going to be appointed, and the site was going to be chosen by the governor and could be anywhere in the state, quote, but it must be either in or near an incorporated city or town on a main line of railroad and shall be generally favorable to the treatment of tuberculosis, end quote. 
And the act also stated that they could not remodel or change an already existing building. The hospital had to be entirely new and built specifically for hospital purposes, which I don't think is unfair. I think that's a fair thing to try to do. Mm -hmm. But nothing really happened for several years, and local women's and fraternal clubs continued to try to raise funds for the hospital themselves with no help from the state. On January 19, 1927, the statesman reported that, quote, Idaho has made progress in the eradication of tuberculosis from animals, expending for the purpose more than $250,000 since 1919. Annually, based on an average of 177 deaths from the disease, Idaho loses a total of $1,327,500, it is said, end quote. So what they're trying to say, what what opponents of this tuberculosis hospital, is that there are not enough people dying of tuberculosis to justify spending this much money building a hospital. Okay. (laughs) I know. So the second bill faced the chopping block in February 1927, but thanks to a lot of local pushback, including from the Idaho Parent Teachers Association, who adopted resolutions of construction of the hospital, along with timely resolutions of the enforcement of prohibition laws, and the upholding of moral tone of literature and motion pictures, and that's all according to the South Idaho Press, it remained. So the Parent Teachers Association is coming in and being like, we are here to pass resolutions to build these hospitals. They also want to enforce prohibition laws, and they want to basically censor literature and motion pictures. So in here for the moral uplift of Idahoans. So finally, debate over $141,000 worth of funds for building of the hospital came to the public in February 1929. And so you may be wondering, why in the world is there so much debate over whether or not to build a hospital? And per the Idaho Statesman on February 10th, 1929, quote, succeeding legislatures haven't been sold on the idea of a state tuberculosis hospital in a state where the death rate is the lowest in the nation and a state where tuberculosis, after all, is not a leading cause of death. There are those who see no more reason for erecting a hospital for the treatment of tuberculosis than for a hospital for the treatment of cancer, end quote, which now looking back is like, Mm, that's not the argument you think it is. But people continue to fight for a state tuberculosis hospital through 1930. So remember, all this started 1919. So we are now 11 years into this fight. Another bill to create a state tuberculosis hospital passed the House in 1937. In 1937, though, they were able to get matching New Deal funds from the Public Works Administration. And for those of you who have, it's been a while since you studied the New Deal, the PWA was designated to provide governmental funding to stimulate the economy by providing jobs and money. And so by getting these matching New Deal funds, it helped with what seemed to be the major money question of where is this money going to come from? So then they started to look at sites. So Weezer in eastern Idaho near Oregon and Lava Hot Springs in the southwestern corner of the state were both offered as new sites for the hospital. Then on July 30th, the governor stated that the hospital was a, quote, virtual certainty, end quote. So then in August, Governor Barzilla J. Clark named a committee of five Idahoans from around the state to finally get this hospital site set up. In October 1937, Lava Hot Springs was selected as the new site of the hospital, partially because the state already owned 280 acres of land in that area. But this got pushback from Idaho medical leaders and minority members of the selection committee. The statesman stated, quote, more condemnation than praise was heaped on the selection, saying that Lava Hot Springs was, quote, bitterly cold in the winter, end quote, and, quote, in the summer it is hot, dusty, and plagued with wind, end quote. 
So there, you know, tuberculosis is one of those diseases that people say have to be in a certain climate. Lava Hot Springs apparently doesn't have it. Even the state's attorney general stated that Lava Hot Springs, quote, does not, in my opinion, conform with the law, end quote, because it was not centrally located or on a main railroad, though it was located along a railroad, just not the main one. Then, soon after this controversy came out, the state Supreme Court heard arguments about the choice of lava hot springs on the site. And on October 29, 1937, the Idaho Supreme Court ruled, quote, that the act imposes impossible conditions, directions, and requirements on the selection of the proposed site, and that for such reason it is ambiguous, unworkable, invalid, and impossible of intelligent application to the purposes contemplated in establishing a tuberculosis hospital, end quote. So because of this ruling, they would not be able to begin construction in time to get federal funding from the PWA, which would have added $93,600 to the proposed $114,400 of state funds. But the governor is still hopeful that another hospital may still be built. So remember, this is 1937. This started in 1919. They cannot figure this out. So yet another bill is introduced about the state hospital four years later in 1941, permitting the issuance of $85,000 for the refurbishing of the former buildings used for Gooding College in Gooding, Idaho, which is in the southwest near Twin Falls. But the legislature was yet again reticent to do so, citing a lot of the same arguments as decades before. It's not on a railroad line, the weather isn't good, blah, blah, blah. So Gooding College had served students trying to pursue BA degrees between 1917 and 1938. When it closed, the buildings were donated to the local Methodist church, which had provided funds to keep the school going for the 20 years that it was open. The Methodist church then offered the buildings to the state for the hospital. However, according to the South Idaho Press, the legislature did finally approve funds to remodel the Gooding College buildings for the hospital. So finally... We're, we're getting there. But they once again hit a problem. The state had about $55,000 worth of funds allocated for the building of the hospital, but the lowest bid they received for the reconstruction came in at $93,000. So where in the world are you going to get all this extra money? And Public Works Commissioner Alan C. Merritt said dejectedly, quote, It looks as though we have only $55,000 for a $100,000 job, end quote. However, the statesman reported on October 21st, 1941, that a Jerome builder, Felix Plastino, submitted a bid of $48,863 for the remodel, which, of course, was accepted. So contractors finally began construction on the State Tuberculosis Hospital in Gooding on the last week of October 1941. Yay! Yay! It only took 22 years. <laughs> <laughs> then, a year later, on October 20th, 1942, the Times News from Twin Falls reported, quote, Renovation work at the State Tuberculosis Hospital is complete, but Dr. E.L. Berry, Idaho Public Health Director, said the institution may not be utilized because equipment is lacking. That remodeling work cost more than was expected, Dr. Berry said, and funds are now lacking to buy equipment, end quote. So remember, this is October 1942, so don't forget the U.S. is now involved in World War II, so funds and materials are going toward the war effort rather than to domestic projects. So this hospital kind of languishes without any equipment. On January 29, 1943, the Post Register of Idaho Falls reported that the state house made a recommendation, quote, that no further work be done on the state tuberculosis hospital at Gooding, end quote. So everything kind of comes to a standstill. They have it renovated. They just need equipment, but we can't do anything more with it. 
So then in May 1943, the Times News reported that plans were being made, quote, to establish a 500-bed hospital for shell shock victims of the present war in the partially completed State Tuberculosis Hospital and Old Gooding College buildings near Gooding. will be submitted to Army and Navy medical authorities soon. Governor C.A. Batolfson said today, with the expenditure of only a few thousand dollars, the governor said, the buildings and hospital on the campus could be put in shape to house approximately 500 beds for use of shell shock victims. If the government accepts our offer, buildings at Gooding could be put in shape in a few weeks, he said, end quote. The hospital was inspected in June, but the government actually rejected this offer as a basically a rehabilitation hospital. Uh, and so these buildings continue to sit empty, and they're not really doing anything. Then, in February 1944, the Post Register stated that the Gooding Chamber of Commerce went on record as, quote, not opposing, end quote, an establishment of a venereal disease treatment center at the State Tuberculosis Hospital, which, again, has not been used as a hospital for tuberculosis sufferers. And it honestly is almost comical at this point. Like, <laughs> what are we doing? But again, in the same way that this idea of using it for shell shock victims, this idea of using it as a venereal disease treatment center never comes to fruition. On January 10th, 1946, the Times News reported that a five-physician committee from the Idaho State Medical Association, quote, advocated the abandonment of the remodeled and defunct Gooding College as a state tuberculosis hospital in a report to the state planning board. The committee suggested that the state construct a new tuberculosis hospital in a central area, pointing out that the north and west sections of the state contribute an appreciably larger percentage of tuberculosis cases than does the east and the south, end quote. Just days after this recommendation, a state planning agency, quote, adopted a resolution urging immediate activation of a state tuberculosis hospital. State House sources said the only time legislators reached agreement on the issue in the past two decades was in the 1941 legislature when they appropriated $85,000 for remodeling of the defunct Gooding College of the Methodist Episcopal Church in Gooding, end quote. And still after this, there is a special session of the state legislature to decide where the tuberculosis hospital would be located. Now, understandably, the Gooding Chamber of Commerce was, quote, up in arms, end quote, in this effort to move the hospital to Boise and criticized the report of the Idaho State Medical Association. And so this is, I mean, this battle just continues. So John Clauser, who's a member of the Gooding Chamber of Commerce Committee, quote, said that Gooding was as much on the main line railroad as Boise and that sufficient housing facilities for hospital employees is available and that the state has already put too much money in the Gooding institutions to start changing locations now. He said there's a pressing need now for 250 beds for tubercular patients, end quote. A.F. James, an attorney and former mayor of Gooding, emphatically declared, quote, people who live in glass houses should not throw stones, end quote. And the Times News noted that he, quote, dug out an old law, which he said proves that Boise is only the temporary capital of the state of Idaho. He asserted that it was his opinion that the temper of the people of the state is such at present time that if any community were to put up funds to build a state house, the people would vote to move the capital from Boise. If the state planners and the medical committee want to do something for the good of Idaho, they should plan to move the capital from Boise rather than the state tuberculosis hospital from Gooding, end quote. 
So he is out here being like, you guys want to say that this isn't a good place for the state tuberculosis hospital, but if you look up this old law, which we did actually go over, I think, last season, we kind of talked about the the controversy over whether it's in Lewiston or it's in Boise. So he's trying to say, look, that was never, like, officially decided. And so it's actually you guys, the, the bigger argument, the better argument is to say the state capital needs to be moved rather than the tuberculosis hospital. Yeah, I like that he's bringing back, like... <laughs> 70-year-old. Totally. Yeah, drama. Yeah. That's great. Totally. So this battle for the location of the state tuberculosis hospital, as you can see, is intense, with newspaper articles appearing nearly every day of the month of February 1946 that said that one group of people wanted it to stay in Gooding, and then one group of people wanted to move it to Boise. And in fact, to complicate things even further, the Idaho Anti-Tuberculosis Association wanted to move the hospital to Twin Falls. Like, they cannot decide where this dang hospital is going to go. How many people are dying of tuberculosis in this time period? I mean, that number I, I don't. That's actually a good thing I should have looked up. But back in 1927, they said it was an average of 177 deaths. So, okay, I'm going to pull up my calculator because there is no way my brain's <laughs> going to do that on its own. So, oh, yeah. 177 times 20. So, if that, you know, average of 177 holds, that is 3,540 people who are dying of tuberculosis while the state legislature just bandies back and forth where in the world this hospital is supposed to go. That's oh, interesting. So... Wow. And, and, you know, they keep making the, the argument that, well, it doesn't kill that many people. We don't really need a hospital designated just for this. Blah, 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 blah. Finally, the, new, the Times News reported on March 3rd, 1946, that, quote, with only one negative vote, the Senate passed and sent to the House a bill to appropriate $72,432 for the activation of the state tuberculosis hospital at Gooding, end quote. Huh. So, I found this really interesting article from the Times News published on March 7th, 1946, that read, quote, The statewide feud that has developed as a result of the fight over the location of the tuberculosis hospital is opening a lot of old sores which have already festered too long for the good of Idaho. In retaliation for Boise's apparent attempt to hog everything in the state, proposals are coming from various sections of Idaho that the state capital be moved elsewhere. The possibility for such a move is based on an old constitutional provision which would permit the relocating of the state capital if the voters so decided. Of course, no one seriously believes the state capital will be moved out of Boise as a result of all this horseplay. Idaho already has its buildings scattered <laughs> over the state to the extent that moving the state capital would make us look ridiculous. But even so, the old North and South issue has been fanned into flames once more, and the fight between the university and its southern branch has re-aroused a lot of bad temper. Although it may be halfway in fun, anything that serves to keep these sectional jealousies and animosities alive is no good for the state. Idaho has missed a good many opportunities as a result of its own sectional short-sightedness. What the people of Idaho should learn, those living in all parts of the state, is that the sooner they try to get along on reasonable terms, the better it will be for all concerned, end quote. Again, the Times News, just like us listening to it and me doing this research, are like, knock it off and just open this dang hospital already. You don't need to be fighting about everything. So after the House and Senate passed the bill to activate the Gooding Hospital, tuberculosis patients at St. Alphonsus wrote and signed a letter to Governor Arnold Williams urging him to veto the bill. They are asking, let us stay in Boise. So despite this and all of the debate that went on around the hospital, 
Governor Williams nevertheless signed the bill to activate the state tuberculosis hospital at Gooding on March 17, 1946. But still, there was pushback. The president of the... I'm te- when I was researching this, I was like, I want to gouge my eyes out. This is unbelievable. Yeah. The president of the Idaho Anti-Tuberculosis Association, Dr. H.L. Newcomb, said that the $72,432 appropriated, quote, would not even prepare the building for opening, let alone staff and operate the hospital, end quote. But the activation went forward, and the Post Register reported on November 21st, 1946, that efforts were being made to find the necessary doctors, nurses, and staff to finally open the hospital. Wow. On December 1st, 1946, Dr. Kenneth A. Tyler, who had been a medical director of the Alexander Tuberculosis Sanatorium in Cairo, Illinois, was named the superintendent of the Idaho State Tuberculosis Hospital. In early January 1947, the Department of Public Health recommended an appropriation of $439,150 to cover operation and improvement at the hospital. Governor C.A. Robbins withheld his approval of that number, but gave it limited approval if they could find a way to make improvements, quote, with a view of some savings, end quote. Then, February 16, 1947, Dr. Tyler reported that renovations were almost totally complete, and they were hoping to get some hospital equipment, including 150 beds, and whole buildings from the wartime prisoner of war camp in Rupert. And so what I mean by whole buildings is they actually were planning to take some of the buildings who had been in this prisoner of war camp and sort of just transfer them over to Gooding so that they didn't have to build anything new and they could just renovate those already existing buildings that in Rupert were just going to sit empty. So two months later, this request to get 150 beds and buildings had been granted, but the hospital still had not opened. But finally... In the first weekend of May 1947, Dr. Tyler held an open house, which attracted 1,000 visitors over two days. Quote, we are gratified with the turnout of people who are interested in seeing how this institution will operate, end quote, Dr. Tyler said. And so finally, after almost 30 years, the first two tuberculosis patients were transferred from St. Alphonse's Hospital in Boise to the Idaho State Tuberculosis Hospital in Gooding, Idaho, on May 14th. 1947. And as I said, nearly 30 years after the legislature first passed a bill to build it, the tuberculosis hospital is finally in operation. Ironically, the hospital was open for just about as long as it took to get it into operation. In fact, it was less. It closed in 1976 after 29 years of operation. And so now the buildings that were once a school, were once a tuberculosis hospital. It is now the Gooding University Inn and Resort, and, like the penitentiary, has been featured on an episode of Ghost Adventures because of its history as a tuberculosis sanitarium. So I like that it's a, it's a resort now. Yeah. That's... <laughs> it's just like, oh, people came here to uh, maybe get better but probably die of tuberculosis. Let's make it a, a lovely bed and breakfast. I wonder how many years it took for them to open that up as a bed and breakfast. Like, yeah, but I do remember looking, and it actually looks like a kind of cute place. It's October, it's spooky season, and I like fun spooky. I don't like scary spooky, and sanitariums yeah. and asylums just really freak me out. Um, yeah. So if you are the kind of person who likes spooky season, legit spooky season, go check out Gooding University Inn and Resort. I haven't seen that episode of Ghost Adventures. It's probably fun. So maybe check that out if you're interested. But that is the 
absolutely insane rabbit hole of the tuberculosis hospital. So honestly, though, I think there are a lot of listeners who probably have some strange connection mm. to that mm -hmm. and just just, uh, you know, maybe don't know about it. So I it's first time I've learned about it. <sighs> so anyway, after that entire rabbit hole, we are going to finally get back to Estella. So two months after her husband, Jonathan, died. On December 14th, 1959, Estella was arrested in Caldwell under the name Estelle Wilson Vallow for drunkenness. Again, I don't know why she's in Caldwell. I don't know why she's being arrested under the, the last name Vallow. She was fined $20 and she was given 10 days in jail. On September 5th, 1960, she was arrested in Walla Walla, Washington for drunkenness under the name Estella Hines, given 10 days in jail, but her sentence was suspended on the condition that she leave town. Then, a month and a half later, in late October 1960, she was arrested in Lewiston for contributing to the delinquency of a minor. Now, often this refers to giving alcohol to minors, but there are no details as to this crime that I could find, so I don't want to say that's for sure what the arrest was about. Now, toward the end of the year, Estella's oldest son was arrested for burglary and actually sentenced to five years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. So he entered in January 1961 and he was discharged in July 1962. I don't know if this delinquency of a minor refers to him or if it referred to a different child or, you know, a minor that wasn't even related to her. Mm -hmm. So finally, she goes about two years without any crimes, and one of the potential reasons for this is because she may have begun a relationship with a man named Benny J. Martin. I found records of a Benny Martin in Idaho born in 1924, which is about the age she gives of Benny J. that she talks about. Now, the Benny that I found born in 1924 was born in southern Idaho and attended the University of Idaho in the 1950s, but it seems like he got a job with the U.S. Department of Agriculture, so I'm not sure that this is the same Benny that Estella was involved with. If it isn't him, then I couldn't find him, but it is possible, but again, I'm not saying it is for sure him. So when Estella was arrested in Caldwell in September 1962 for being drunk in an automobile, she was booked under the name Estella Wilson Martin, which would seem to indicate that they were married. Now, by this point, I don't know how long they had been together, but apparently they had been together long enough that Estella considered themselves common law married. They wouldn't have been. Usually common law marriage takes about seven years. One report said they'd only been living together for seven to eight months prior to a new arrest in early 1963. She pleaded innocent to the September 1962 drunk charge. She was fined $300 and given 15 days in jail. She was instead given a five-day suspended sentence rather than serve 15 days. Now, Benny had been in the car when Estella was arrested for basically drunk driving, and he was arrested for being drunk in an automobile. He was fined $25 along with a friend, Daniel M. O'Connell, who was also drunk. She was arrested three months later back in Lewiston for drunkenness under the name Estella Wilson, again given a five-day suspended sentence. Then, two months later, on February 5th, 1963, she was arrested in Lewiston, this time for issuing a check without funds, and she was not given a suspended sentence for this arrest. And as is often the case with check-related crimes, the details about this crime are pretty sparse. The documents in her file read this, quote, On 1-12-63, at Lewiston, Idaho, I wrote a check for $35.50 made payable to Benny Martin. Benny Martin, who has not been apprehended, cashed the check at a place called the Paradise Club, a beer tavern in Lewiston. He then bought some groceries and gave me some money in change. 
I wrote about four other no-good checks in Lewiston, but I do not recall the particulars. I was sober at the time I wrote the checks. I was arrested in Lewiston about 2-4-63. So, for kind of the first time, she is not arrested for being drunk, but is arrested for something worse. So, Mr. Callahan, an agent for the State Parole and Probation Board in Lewiston, who talked with Estella upon her arrest, gave somewhat of a conflicting story. He said the amount of the check, instead of thirty-five fifty, was thirty-two fifty. and, quote, she told them that she wrote the check to buy groceries, as she had run out of money she once had due to land sales, said she used to have the funds in the bank, and signed the name of Stella Wilson. She planned to make the check good from timber sales in Washington, now pending. She owns several fractions of various pieces of land. At least one other check of like amount she cashed in Lewiston was known to the police, end quote. In fact, when she was first arrested, the prosecuting attorney's statement said, quote, defendant informed me she had no knowledge of having written this check, although she did not deny that the signature was hers. She volunteered that she would like to postpone sentencing until she had an opportunity to discover whether or not other checks had been written, and if so, to make restitution for them. This has been done, end quote. So I think given her history with alcohol, I don't think it's unreasonable to assume that she had signed the check while under the influence, perhaps both of alcohol and Benny. But in all accounts, the check was made payable to Benny. So that's why I'm saying, like, maybe he's the one who kind of egged her on to do it. But he isn't arrested or held in this case. It's just her. I do think this seems like it's one of the cases that a woman kind of had to do what she had to do to pay the bills, even if she committed a crime to do it. That doesn't make it okay. It does seem that she was just kind of out of money. She wasn't doing it to get more money than she was owed. And, And she even said that she was hoping that money would come in from pieces of land she had sold. But in March 1963, Estella is sentenced to three years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. And she was transported down to the penitentiary with two other American Indian women who had been charged with check-related crimes in Nespers County, Claire Johnson Lopez, who I covered two seasons ago in episode 51, and Elizabeth Levita Grant, though their crimes were not related to each other. They didn't commit them together. Upon her arrest and sentence, she still had custody of her youngest three children. Her 15-year-old son, William, was able to remain in Spalding, Idaho, perhaps with her oldest son, Manuel, or some other relatives. Unfortunately, she was not able to find any family who could or would take in her two youngest children, Franklin James, who was 12, and Floria Jane, who was 9. And sadly, they were taken from her custody and, quote, adopted out and their present names unknown, end quote. So Estella Wilson entered the penitentiary on March 12, 1963. So her uh, intake papers, race, Indian, and in parentheses it says Nez Perce, sex, female, age, 41, height, 60 and three-fourths, weight, 140, eyes, brown, hair, black, complexion, brown, Indian, occupation, housewife, children, six, marital status, divorced. It notes married and divorced twice, separated from common-law husband, two children by first marriage, four children by second marriage, two other children by second marriage adopted out, education quit in eighth grade. Her Bertillion was fairly simple. She had some scars on her knees, a scar on her cheek and on her chin. It was also noted that her teeth were bad and she had several missing. She was one of only eight inmates when she entered, including the two other women from Nez Perce County. 
So, because Estella was an enrolled tribal member, she had another form in her file that other inmates do not have, because prison authorities had to do their due diligence where American Indian inmates were concerned because of the Major Crimes Act of 1885. So the Major Crimes Act stated that crimes committed by American Indians on Indian lands were subject to Indian jurisdiction except for seven crimes that fell under federal jurisdiction, and those crimes were murder, manslaughter, rape, assault with intent to kill, arson, burglary, and larceny. It was then later extended to include kidnapping, incest, assault with a dangerous weapon, assault against a minor, and felony child abuse or neglect. So basically what the Major Crimes Act says is that if an American Indian commits a crime on American Indian land, they are subject to American Indian courts. Unless they commit all those crimes that I just mentioned. In that case, they are then, whether they committed that crime on Indian lands or not, they are then to be under federal American national jurisdiction. And so basically, if an American Indian committed any crime off the reservation, felony or not, they were subject to U.S. or state jurisdiction. And the reason that they really have to do their due diligence is just a year before, in April 1962, Raymond J. Connor, a Nez Perce tribal member, brought a writ of habeas corpus saying that because he was an American Indian who committed forgery on tribal lands, he should no longer be kept at the Idaho State Penitentiary. And a month later, Judge Merlin S. Young ruled that the state did not, in fact, have jurisdiction over Connor committing forgery in, quote-unquote, Indian country, and he ordered Connor released from prison. And so from that point on, prison authorities had to ensure that every inmate who claimed Indian heritage did not commit their crime unless it was one of those major ones on reservation lands. And so even though Estella was born and spent most of her time on the Nez Perce Reservation, she wrote and issued her checks in Lewiston, which is 10 miles outside of the reservation boundary, and so her sentence stood. So in May 1963, one of her older half-sisters wrote Warden Clapp asking if she could send Estella cigarettes and needlework while Estella was in prison. Warden Clapp replied and said she could send needlework, but not cigarettes. Instead, she could send money for Estella to purchase cigarettes and other, quote, luxury items, and quote, such as ice cream and candy from the prison commissary, but as inmates, they could not spend more than $5 a week, which is, I feel like, a piece of women's prison that we don't see very often. Um, I actually don't think I knew that they could, couldn't spend more than $5 a week, but that they could buy things like ice cream and candy. So on January 24th, 1964, Warden Clapp received a letter from Estella's half-brother Thomas saying he had originally written the state parole board in Lewiston, but they had referred him to Clapp. And he said, quote, I have heard that Stella was in the hospital. I sure would like to know how long more she has got to serve her time, if there would be any chance of parole her to me. I live here in Nespolem, Washington. You could let her know about it, see what she thinks about it. She is my only sister, but she never does write to me. Let me know about her when she will be released from Boise, Idaho. I will be glad to do anything for her. So I thank you. May God bless you, end quote. Warden Clapp responded, quote, Subject is not eligible for parole at this time. I understand she intends to apply to the April 1964 Board of Pardons for final release. At this time, I have no knowledge what their action may be. Subject seems to be getting along well, end quote. And sure enough, she placed herself before the April 1964 Board of Pardons to ask for a final release. 
the board did a pre-release report to make sure that her parole plans were good enough. And it says, quote, she plans to go to Soap Lake, Washington to take care of her sister, who is in the last stages of diabetes, having had one leg amputated and is losing her eyesight. She would go to Lewiston just long enough to transact some business and pick up her belongings, which are stored at her niece's place. She has about $200 on the books and received a check last week for $199. The money was received from the Indian Agency and sale of Timberland, end quote. And apparently these plans were considered good enough, and the board voted that she be granted a final release effective May 5th, 1964, subject to good conduct. And she was discharged from the penitentiary, and she was indeed discharged from the penitentiary on May 5th, 1964. And she served one year, one month, and 23 days of a three-year sentence. So, the only document I could find about Estella after her release from prison was her obituary, which appeared in the Spokane Chronicle on May 25, 1975, just about 11 years after she had been released. She died three days earlier, on March 22, 1975. She was just 55 years old. Per her obituary, it seems that her two youngest children, Franklin and Floria, who had been adopted out, were reunited with her as their mother, as they are both listed as her survivors, though Floria had changed her name to Bonnie. Estella Wilson is buried on the Waters Family Cemetery in Julieta, Idaho. And, whew, after all that, that is number 11233, Estella Wilson. Wow. I feel like I learned a ton about tuberculosis. I know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's an important part of our history, mm-hmm. just how we battle disease as mm-hmm. a country. And, you know, it nothing has changed, obviously. Right. That, uh, there are some states that are super supportive of that sort of thing, and then some that are like, hey, you know, it's not that big of a problem. And right. We shouldn't shut everything down mm-hmm. just because some people are getting sick and dying from this thing. Right, and, right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's interesting. It's it, you know, same same reaction, just different diseases, and and history really is kind of a cycle. You know, everyone always says like history repeats itself, um, but I like this one better. It says history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, and I think that's yeah. that's definitely tuberculosis and and then diseases that we're sort of seeing, obviously COVID and and things like that, often and other you know resurgent diseases. That it's not repeating itself, but it's looking awfully similar. Like we can sort of connect them in ways that rhyme. So uh, I think honestly, I talked more about the tuberculosis hospital than I did Estella's actual life and crime. But um, I, that, like I said, I got into this thinking like, oh, this will be like a quick, easy, like fun little thing to do. And like I said, I think I took a week or maybe even two, just being like, what in the world is happening? Yeah, because it just back and forth and back and forth and so yeah that (laughs) that is that whole story um let's let's move on to who you have got today all right who i have today I have David Lewis Hoagland, number 3241. This is one that I've given presentations. I've kind of discussed him in front of folks in the past, and he's just an interesting individual. My sources today, uh, of course, is Inmate File, the Idaho Daily Statesman, Newspapers.com, Ancestry.com, Findagrave.com, the Idaho Supreme Court document State v. Hoagland from 1924, 
National Park Service website that details soldiers in the Civil War, and the Valley County website with a history of Valley County. David Lewis Hoagland was born on September 29th, 1868 in Kansas to James Henry and Sarah Marie Hoyt Hoagland. David's father, James, was a blacksmith and had been a member of the 44th Indiana Infantry during the Civil War. And so, of course, I had to investigate through the National Park Service website, their large database of Civil War soldiers, and I actually found that James served in Company H as a private and he served as a wagoner. You may be able to guess, but a wagoner basically oversaw the essential transportation of supplies like food, medicine, bandages, weapons, ammunition, clothing, tools. They maintained the wagons and the animals that pulled them. A very serious part of the war that is often forgotten about. But a job I think you would prefer to being on the front lines. Yes, yes. <laughs> I would say so. Any position is better than being on the front lines during the Civil War, I think. Yeah, and and that's such an essential one that if something happens to the wagoners, like, and you're cut off from ammunition, like, mm-hmm. you know, the battle's lost. Yeah. Like, so it's, that's, it's still a dangerous thing because you could be ambushed and everything else that could happen. But uh, David's mother, Sarah, took care of the children, which was a full-time job as she gave birth to eight of them. David was the third born, and he had three sisters named Cora, Ursula, and Lavina, and four brothers named Emery, James, Alfonso, and Clarence. The Civil War is the funniest, like, 1830s through, like, the 1880s are the weirdest times for names. They've Serious. got, you know, normal names like James, and then they have what seem like perhaps more ethnic names like Alfonso, and you're just like, mm-hmm. but they're, you know, they're often, they often tend to be white, and so it's like, this is such a funny, I don't know, it just is a funny time yeah. for names. Also, I love the name Ursula, even though it's the, she's the sea witch <laughs> in Little Mermaid, but I think that's a great name for 1860s. Honestly, when I when I saw that, that was my first thought, too. I saw Ursula's face, and I was like, okay. <laughs> so he's born in 1868 in Kansas. He's got these seven siblings, these three sisters, these four brothers. In the 1880 census, the family is living in Clifton, Kansas, in the northeast portion of the state. David and his siblings were enrolled in school. And I found a sheriff's sale note in May of 1889 in which the American National Bank was a plaintiff against James and Sarah Hoagland as they defaulted on their mortgage lien. And they owed the bank about $700 and lost all of this land and all of their property to the highest bidder to pay off this debt. This may have been the impetus for the Hoagland family to pick up and actually move west in the early 1890s, arriving in Idaho around 1891. As the family established themselves in Idaho, David married Celestina May Adams on June 17, 1896 in Boise. And Celestina was born in Shenandoah, Iowa in 1874 and was about five years younger than David. And according to her findagrave.com profile, she went by Tina. So I'm just going to call her Tina from now on because Celestina. See, but do you Silis, see what I mean? Celestina. Celestina. Great name. Great name. Uh, I can't say it over it, and over just, again. I was going to say, it's say just it a mouthful. Twice in a row. It's but, so hard. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Tina and David, they actually had their first child, a, a daughter named Clara, a year later. 
and then their son Francis a year after that. So they get married 1896, 1897, they have their first daughter, 1898, they have their first son. In 1898, David and Sarah actually sold 80 acres of land to a man named George Parkin, just south of Chingen Boulevard, between McDermott and Star Road. So just so listeners have an idea, this is kind of undeveloped farmland over there. They made $2,000 off of this deal selling 80 acres of land right there. I bet a lot of listeners may be going down Chingen Boulevard's cross by some of this area. And in today's money, this is worth, any guesses? Maybe like 6000 uh, 60,000 is the uh, inflation calculator number I got, too. <laughs> Over 60,000. I, I got to yeah. start studying those because my, my guesses are um, embarrassing. Mine are, too. I feel like we just get worse at this game. Well, it's because it's like, well, in you know, I figured out in the 50s, like, this is what the inflation is. But then I, like, don't know going back. Yeah, it just, it all fluctuates yeah. so much. It's so hard. But we'll keep playing because it's yeah. fun. Right, yeah. So they sell this land in 1898, and then a year later, David's father, James, he dies in the Boise Veterans Home in 1899. In the 1900 census, David, Tina, and their first two children were actually living and farming in West Caldwell, and they were tenants on the land, renting and farming it. And uh, in 1902, they had their third and final child named Graydon, which also is very cool. They'd call him Gray, oh. G-R-A-Y-D-O-N. I just... Great. Great name. so cool. 10 out of yeah, 10 names great. so far. In October 1908, his mother passed away at the age of 76 at the home of David's sister and was buried at Morris Hill Cemetery next to uh, David's father, James. In the 1910 census, David was still working as a farmer in West Caldwell, but I found that life on the farm could be pretty dangerous. September 1912, Tina was actually filling some straw beds. Quote, as she was climbing down from the rig, the horse became frightened and started to run. Mrs. Hoagland was caught between the buggy and the horse, resulting in the breaking of several ribs and the breastbone. She was taken to the hospital for treatment. It is earnestly hoped that her injuries will not prove as serious as first supposed, end quote. Scary. This is 1912, and fortunately she actually survives this. She recovers from this injury. And then sometime in November 1917, David has his own accident on the farm. He's actually thrown out of a wagon, and he lands on his head Mm. and his face. His nose is smashed. The left side of his head is all bruised and bloodied. He continued to fall in and out of consciousness for several days. When he finally came to, after after about a week of being in bed and kind of flickering in and out, his right arm basically began to shake and quiver, and uh, he would kind of hold this for the rest of his life. It kind of it made it difficult for him to write or shave or do any everyday item with his with his hand, and. He complained of headaches and dizzy spells for the rest of his life. Oh, gosh. Yeah, head injuries are no bueno. So scary. And despite these injuries, the family continued to farm. That's all he really honestly uh, knew outside of, you know, just basic carpentry and different things that he learned while farming. In 1920, the family actually moved north to Cascade, and David listed his occupation again as farmer and he noted that he rented the land he worked at. He was renting from the most prominent man in Valley County, this man named William D. Patterson. 
Now, let's look at William Patterson. He was born in North Carolina, August 4, 1867, just over a year before David Hoagland in Kansas. Like the Hoaglands, William moved to Idaho, and he homesteaded, and I found several notes in the newspaper from him entering homestead proofs on land in Boise, Crawford, and Cascade, Idaho. He became a fixture in the developing community as he was seen as, quote, well-to-do, end quote. In 1914, the Union Pacific Railroad completed a track running between Emmett and McCall, which opened the new lumber industry next to this farming and ranching industry that already thrived in that region and still thrives today. Towns like Crawford, which were too far away from this railroad line, actually began to dwindle, and the population and economic activity kind of centered around McCall, Donnelly, and Cascade. And so this is about 1914 that this happens, and... In 1917, Valley County was officially created by the Idaho State Legislature. It was originally part of Idaho County and Boise County, and Idaho Governor Moses Alexander actually appointed the commissioners to represent the new community. And in May 1917, Governor Alexander tapped William Patterson to be an officer, to be a commissioner for the newly created county. William was noted as one of the wealthiest farmers and landowners in this whole county, and I found mentions of his wife and mother actually hosting these parties for the Cascade Civic Club in town. So they're very well-to-do. They're very popular individuals in this town. David became a tenant farmer, as I said, and he was renting land from William Patterson, and he was raising cattle on this land. And unfortunately, David and the Hoaglands appeared to be struggling to make ends meet. During the evening of October 13, 1922, while at a dance in Cascade, David got into an argument with William over the division of the cattle on the land. The heated argument ended with David storming off and returning to his home where he laid sleepless in bed all night, just livid and seething with William on his brain. He was sure that he would be evicted from the land for non-payment of rent, which maybe he was thinking of his family losing their land back in Kansas to the bank back in 1889. Now, early in the morning on Saturday, October 14th, 1922, David climbed out of bed. He couldn't let this argument go. He left his home and he walked a mile to the Patterson farm wielding his high-powered 42 caliber rifle got to the farm located about a mile and a half north of Cascade and he hid in William's barn waiting quietly for about 20 minutes clutching his rifle. Around 5:20 a.m. William rose up, he left the house and he began the morning chores heading straight to this barn to milk the cows. When he was about 20 yards from the barn, David stepped from the doorway of the barn, raised his rifle and shouted, it's all off with you. William grunted and turned as David pulled the trigger. Quote, the bullet entered Patterson's body under the right shoulder and came out through the left breast. End quote. David fired again, but missed before running off. William's wife actually heard the gunshot and saw the muzzle flash. William's son heard the shot and ran outside to his father, quote, who was lying in a pool of blood in the barnyard. End quote. The son quickly drove to Cascade to alert Sheriff Diggs, who, with Deputy W.C. Hurd, returned to the ranch. 
After documenting the scene, they went to David Hoagland's home, and when they entered, David put down his gun and said, quote, I'll go any place with you, but don't let them mob me, end quote. He was taken to the Valley County Jail, nervous with good reason. Rumors began to swirl that a mob would break into the jail and hang him on the spot. To prevent this, 45 minutes after the shooting, the deputy sheriff, W.D. Hurd, actually put David into a car and drove him through a mountainous, treacherous road down to Boise to await trial. Soon after, a funeral was held, and William Patterson was buried at the Margaret Cemetery in Cascade, Idaho. David sat in Ada County Jail and refused to speak about the murder. He was driven back north to Cascade and taken in on back roads to avoid any mob violence along the way. At this time in 1922, these were treacherous mountain roads, not Idaho State Highway 55 North that we can easily travel. The courtroom, when he arrived, was full on October 18, 1922, when he put down his plea. Despite admitting his guilt to the sheriff, David pled not guilty. Authorities noted the high tension in the town against David, so at 7.30 p.m. that night, after he puts in his not guilty plea, they decide to make the long, difficult drive back to Boise to place David in the Ada County Jail. He sat there through the winter. Later, when asked why he didn't remain in the Valley County Jail that night, the sheriff explained, quote, The jail at Cascade was overcrowded at the time, had no plumbing of any kind, and was situated on the outskirts of the town. It was not safe, fit, or a proper place to keep prisoners, and it was particularly unsuited for keeping the defendant who admitted the killing of said Patterson and offered no explanation whatever therefore. Under these circumstances, Affiant deemed it proper and prudent to take the defendant to Boise and confine him in the county jail of Ada County and accordingly did so, end quote. On January 17, 1923, David's lawyers attempted to change the venue for trial, but the motion was denied. He was returned to the jail in Cascade, now to await his trial there. Now, his middle son, Francis, actually went through the community in Cascade trying to collect signatures to have his father's trial moved to another county, but the community wouldn't support it. People would not sign this petition. His trial began finally on February 9th, 1923, four months after the murder. And it's a trial considered one of the most sensational in Valley County's history. It lasted over a week. And on February 17, 1923, the jury was sent out to deliberate. One hour and 30 minutes later, they returned with their decision. David Hoagland was found guilty of murder in the first degree. At this time, the jury was allowed to recommend a sentence, and they recommended the death sentence. Oh, it's harsh. Four days later, on February 21st, 1923, the judge sentenced David Hoagland to hang on April 16th, less than two months after this conviction. Quote, the doomed man received the verdict without a comment, end quote. He arrived at the Idaho State Penitentiary hours after his sentencing. The Idaho statesman described David as, quote, gaunt, tall, his facial features marked with innumerable lines as though he had prematurely aged, end quote. So his intake, David Hoagland, number 3241, crime, murder in the first degree, age 57, weight 170 pounds, height 84 inches. You know what that is, guy? 
He's got to be almost seven feet tall. Yeah, he's seven feet tall on the form. They actually write seven feet tall. That is... In big letters. Enormous. He's so big, yeah. Clearly build tall. (laughs) Hair, dark gray. Eyes, very blue. Complexion, medium. Mustache, reddish. And you can see that in his mug shot. Born in 1866. Received from Valley County. Sentenced death. Member of the Christian Church. So, all my research, David at seven feet tall has to be one of the tallest men to serve at the Idaho State Penitentiary. The newspapers only kind of mention it that one time at the very beginning when they talk about him being tall and gaunt, which I was so surprised by. He had several scars and scratches all over his body from working on farms throughout his life, and right away he was locked in a small death row cell on the first floor of the 1890s cell house. His cell, of course, facing the Rose Garden. Mm -hmm. David's lawyers, Carl Burke and S.R. Hibbert, appealed the case of the Supreme Court. They argued that David's head injury from the fall in 1917 made him, quote, subject to fits of insanity, and it was during one of these fits that he is alleged to have killed Patterson, end quote. Honestly, I was wondering why that hadn't come up earlier, but I guess this is kind of before the time that we had an understanding of just how serious head injuries can be. I don't think he had the best lawyers defending him right off the bat. Mm. He did kill this man. He did admit to it, and so it's like, it's that thing, but mm-hmm. something was clearly off with him, right, and, right. and they try to get to that later on. So his lawyers actually filed the affidavits two weeks before the hanging was to take place in April, and so the hanging was actually called off as the case was reviewed. On May 10th, an insanity plea was entered in a final effort to save David's life from the hanging, and the case went on to the Supreme Court. And at this time, construction on the shirt factory had begun. And according to the Idaho Statesman, quote, During the construction of the shirt factory, Hoagland, a skilled carpenter, was on this work, end quote. And honestly, anyone who goes into that building can see the massive wood beams that hold that building up. It's not hard to imagine that, you know, as a super large man, Mm -hmm. David would have been an essential piece of that building's construction. Tall and probably really strong. Yeah, serious. Working on farms his whole life. After the shirt factory was completed, David was actually allowed to work in the dining hall as a cook, which is kind of unusual for uh, people condemned to hang. In 1923, Noah Arnold and his partner Mike Donnelly, who you will hear about later on this season, were actually sent to the prison on first-degree murder charges after killing a grocer in northern Idaho in July 1923. Uh, Noah was sentenced to hang, while his partner Mike Donnelly was given a life sentence. In 1924, another man would be housed in death row with David and Noah Arnold named John Jerko, who we will cover in a future season. John was also sentenced to death for a murder, kind of similar to David Hoagland's. Now, in July 1924, the Supreme Court upheld the Valley County Court decision, despite the 20 assignments of error brought forth by David's attorneys. The errors ranged from not allowing the trial to take place outside of Valley County to not accepting the insanity plea at all. The Supreme Court doc states, quote, Our examination of the entire record convinces us that the appellant had a fair and impartial trial, 
by a jury unbiased and unprejudiced. The act of the defendant in taking the life of the deceased was both cruel and inhumane and without provocation or excuse and was deliberately planned and premeditatedly carried out without affording the deceased an opportunity to defend himself or offer any resistance against the uncalled for and inexcusable fatal assault made upon him. End quote. David was actually set to hang again, and his only chance for commutation for a sentence to life in prison instead of execution relied on the board of pardon and parole. And when he was told the news in his cramped death row cell, he responded, quote, I am disappointed, end quote. Authorities and journalists noted he didn't show an ounce of emotion to them upholding this conviction. While the decision went through appeal, David was given another job in the prison kitchen, and later he was actually sent to work in the prison furnace room. In September 1924, David was sent to Cascade for the date of his execution to be set once again, and the judge placed it on the same day as John Jerko's execution, November 14, 1924. In October, with time running out for David, his attorneys had him driven to a Boise doctor's office to have his head x-rayed, finally. They had until October 25th to present the evidence that David had brain damage from being, quote, kicked or otherwise knocked in the head, and since that time, he has acted queer at times, end quote. This was the result from falling off that wagon in November 1917 that left terrible bruises and constant tremors in his right hand. The x-rays were presented to the courts for analysis, but it was noted, quote, There was ample time also prior to the trial to have had x-ray photographs taken, and the presumption is that at any time during the course of the trial, upon proper application, the court would have ordered that to be done, end quote. They should have done all of this during the trial, before the trial. They had plenty of time to submit this x-ray evidence, and they never did it in the first place. So nice. it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, too too little, too late. Right. So Major Robert P. Smith, who was a former mental disease specialist in the Boise Barrack Hospital, actually examined David on October 6th and concluded that, quote, Hoagland is now and has been since 1918 of an insane mind and not safe to himself or others to be at large. This opinion is based on his change of disposition, gradually occurring following an injury to his head and damage to his brain in 1917. The changes reported were dizziness and a tendency to fainting spells, which he characterized as, quote, blind staggers. Also constant headaches, fatigability, irritability, explosive emotions, and finally, development of delusions of persecution, paranoid ideas, hallucinations of sight and hearing, mysterious and elaborated visions, belief that his own mind was being tampered with, that his family was being influenced against him, and finally, the impulse to kill and relieve the situation, which impulse was too strong for him to resist and beyond his power to prevent or control, end quote. That's one of the first times that I've seen this kind of insanity plea. And if David was actually having these serious delusions and hallucinations, like, oh my gosh. I also wonder what showed up on the x-ray because, you know, obviously they don't have the technology to do brain scans. And so unless there's a major, like maybe, I guess maybe there could be like a healed fracture or something, but I don't imagine that his skull is going to show a ton of evidence that would help 
proof that his brain was damaged, but maybe back then, because they didn't have brain imaging, they had ways of looking at the skull and being like, oh, see, here's this piece that is not the way it's supposed to be, and this means this. I just find that so interesting. They didn't really talk about the x-rays. Mostly it was through the interviews with these different specialists. Mm That's that's all I could really find, detailed analysis of David and his like psyche and everything going on right then. Uh, so a petition was actually passed around to everybody that knew David and over 1,000 Idahoans, quote, who have known him for periods of time varying from 5 to 40 years, all say the Hoagland they knew was never the type of man capable of committing the cold-blooded murder to which Hoagland has confessed, end quote. And so, you know, a thousand Idahoans are signing this petition, sending it into the Board of Pardon Parole, and which is interesting it's up to because them. there, the there was another petition before that they didn't sign. So that was just within the Valley County community to get, you know, the the trial moved because so many inflammatory write ups in the Cascade newspapers about David. That he was just, like, he was already a convicted man before he even got to his trial. Like, everybody knew this story. And William Patterson, who's the commissioner for this community, he's killed. And, of of course, everyone's going to condemn David Hoagland. And, mm-hmm. you know, rightfully so. Mm-hmm. He should be punished. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just fascinating. But uh, on November 7th, a week before the hanging, set for November 14th, David's attorneys were granted to allow a special board of doctors to examine David and determine his sanity. The prison physician, Dr. George Collister, whom Collister Elementary is named after, the state medical director, F.W. Allamond, and the superintendent of the Institution for the Feeble-Minded in Nampa, Dior Pointer, were set to examine David. Now, Warden John Snook, he's now warden again in the 1920s, just for a brief period. He actually readied the gallows in the prison Rose Garden, where convicted murderer and author of Behind Grey Walls, Patrick Murphy, had actually set up a shed to make his junk and had set up the beautiful rose and flower garden. Now, when Snook was asked about the preparation, he said, quote, I hope I don't have to hang him. Hoagland has been a model prisoner if there ever was one in the penitentiary, end quote. I love John Snook. Mm-hmm. And this is someone who's executed several people in his life. So for him to be like, you know, I don't really want to hang this guy, yeah, it means a lot, I think. Mm-hmm. On November 13th, 1924, a day before his execution, the doctors brought forth their observation, their analysis of David to the pardon board. Dr. Collister and Superintendent Dior Pointer concluded that David was sane at the time of their analysis and sane during the commission of the crime. However, Dr. F.W. Almond, the state medical advisor, said David, quote, has been going through the development of a delusional insanity and would ultimately develop unmistakable evidence of this disease, end quote. So it's two doctors against one. Neither report was actually adopted by the pardon board. They basically said, okay, you all cancel each other out. Mm. And so after the hearing, the motion to continue the execution was brought forward the next day. Now, the governor, C.C. Moore, voted in favor of the execution, which is important for him to support that. It's important for him to support the rule of law, and he noted that despite wanting to support a commutation to life sentence and David's life sentence in prison— 
quote, no citizen is safe in his own home against assassination unless the laws are strictly enforced, end quote. So, you know, he's saying, you know, it's my job to enforce this rule. He's been condemned to hang. I'm going to make sure that happens. Despite this, the other two members of the board, Attorney General A.H. Connor and Secretary of State F.A. Jeter, voted in favor of a commutation. The Attorney General felt that there were two distinctions of murderers, those that commit a murder to fulfill a robbery or rape or any number of violent crime, and those whose, quote, killing is committed by those whose real or fancied wrongs lead them to the conclusion that they must take the law into their own hands. Murderers of this latter class are seldom of the criminal type, and in almost every instance, the only offense against society which they have committed is the homicide itself. Quite frequently, the defendant is a person whose life has been exemplary in all other aspects, end quote. By their two votes against the governor, David's life was spared as he received a sentence of life in prison a day, just hours before his execution. Now, Warden Snook, after hearing the news, actually ran from the state, the Capitol building and to back to the prison to inform David, who responded, quote, I am very grateful that my life has been spared. I did not care so much for myself. It was my wife, my children, and my grandchildren that made me hope to the last that my life would be spared, end quote. Journalists noted that tears actually trickled down his cheeks and he suppressed sobs as he relayed this message. So this is the first time that he showed any sense of emotion or remorse this whole time. Uh, Warden Snook immediately pulled him from the death row cells and moved him to another part of the prison, probably maybe to house. Snook stated, quote, After he has rested up a few days and recovered from the nervous strain to which he has been subjected for so long, he will be put to work but I have not yet decided what he will do. It has been especially hard for him because in the cell where he has been confined, he could hear the carpenters working on the gallows that he must have known was being built for him. He has been a model prisoner in the penitentiary, and I don't anticipate any trouble for him as long as he lives, End quote. Now, one strange aspect is that David's family, who were waiting in the governor's office for the verdict, were completely unmoved by this news. Quote, throughout all the proceedings, the lack of emotion on the part of Hoagland's family has been noticeable, end quote. Hmm. And that's something that I, I would love to know. I don't know if there are family members or people who've experienced this, if, if it's just shock. Or was Hoagland, it, you know, if we take this, you know, potential brain injury as potentially changing his personality and making him paranoid and clearly making him violent, Maybe, and of course this is just speculation, but maybe there was some um, violence against them. And so maybe a little bit of fear or, you know, something like that. And of course, I'm not saying that that is for sure what happened. I'm just wondering if maybe that's, there's, you know, some fear and some like, you know, oh man, there's like a potential he could get out now kind of thing. But who yeah. knows? Maybe it is one of those things where it's just like we, you know, we went through all this time and wow, I can't believe he actually got it, you know. There's got to be something to that. And the fact the newspaper actually notes that is pretty fascinating. John Turco, who was actually to be hanged on November 14th, was actually given a temporary stay. 
and he would actually be hanged two years later in July 1926. It seems that David's tension eased temporarily, but he was still on the grounds when Noah Arnold was hanged a month after his scheduled date on December 19, 1924. We'll talk more about this later in the season. And in June 1925, the Idaho Statesman published, quote, Gallows at Penitentiary Stands in Garden Plot. Flowers at the foot of the grim gallows furnish an unusual sight for visitors at the Idaho State Penitentiary. The posies do not mind the environment at all. Patrick Murphy, gardener at the prison, carefully tends the flowers. Roses form a border about the rectangular garden. Daisies and geraniums take their places near the gallows. Whether the garden grows around the gallows or the gallows was built atop the garden is a matter of question, for the flowers were there first. The gallows was built only last November for the execution of David Hoagland, who was saved by a last-minute reprieve from the state pardon board. It was used, however, early on the morning of December 19th when Noah Arnold was hanged for the murder of an aged storekeeper at Hope, Idaho in July 1923. The hanging of Arnold was the first since 1909 when Fred Seward paid with his life for the murder of a Latah County girl. The unpleasant side of the union, the gallows, probably will be taken down, but the flowers will continue to bloom just as long as the smiling gardener, Murphy, has anything to say about it, end quote. I just wanted to tie it all back to Behind Gray Walls by <laughs> Patrick Murphy. Everybody should read that if they're looking for something interesting to read this spooky season. David appeared before the Board of Pardons and Paroles as often as he could over the next decade, and he would have seen and maybe contributed to the construction of the opening of Number 3 House, the closing of the Sure Factory, and the development of, of several other programs at the prison during the late 1920s and early 30s. After years failing to be released, he had a fighting chance in 1936. Governor Charles Benjamin Ross called for mercy for David, despite the Attorney General and Secretary of State urging the case to be continued later. At a secret meeting from the board just before Christmas, they granted David Hoagland his freedom. After serving 14 years at the institution, David was released on December 22, 1936. Two days later, on Christmas Eve, 1936, the Idaho Statesman published an article supporting the release for the, quote, aged Valley County rancher, end quote. They began the article noting, quote, many times the Statesman has taken occasion to call the Idaho Pardon Board to task for its haphazard policies, which brought pardon for the most desperate criminals with the long careers of crime behind them. It was not surprising that many of these characters became involved in other crimes soon after their discharge. Anyone with the slightest knowledge of criminology could have predicted it, end quote. Now, they were actually supportive of David, who was over 70 years old, and whose crime was, quote, one of passion stirred up by what he believed were grave injustices, end quote. They detailed that he had been a model prisoner, and although he had been sentenced to life, they supported his release, making the point, quote, in view of the generosity extended by the pardon board to really despicable characters, end quote. The condition authorities gave was that David lived with his son, Graydon, in La Grande, Oregon. David left the prison a free man. Now, David, his wife and son, Graydon, moved back to Middleton, Idaho, and in 1938, they moved to 1305 North 25th Street in downtown Boise, where David would live out 
the last of his days. He died at the age of 75 years old of a heart attack on April 25, 1938, in Boise. The newspaper noted it with the headline, quote, David Hoagland, former convict, succumbs in Boise, end quote. His body was interred in the Middleton Cemetery in Middleton, Idaho. I was giving presentations on execution and last-minute reprieves a few years ago, and I included David's story while giving this presentation. And after it, actually, his family members were in the audience, and they came up and thanked me for telling his story. Mm. And they had heard so much, but they learned so much from this story. And as they were leaving, they did say, there is one mystery David's gravestone has gone missing multiple times, and every time we try to replace it, somebody has been stealing it. What? Um, so if there are any listeners out there and you've seen David Hoagland's gravestone, please, please return it to the Middleton Cemetery in Middleton, Idaho, so that he can rest in peace. I'm, I'm hoping that we can tie that together for the family. But, um, like, also, like, who who would be stealing it like that that is so weird because like what what would be the point of that and like if you try to replace it and it gets stolen again it's got to be the same person who's doing it oh that's weird maybe it's a continued family dispute Mm, like william patterson yeah i want to dedicate you know to his memory because he was quite the guy He, he did a ton for valley county Without him, I, I don't know how, how much we would have developed as, you know, as quickly hmm. up in Cascade mm-hmm. and Valley County area. So, well, yeah, and that is well David Hoagland. I, I, thank you. Yeah, I wanted a, a somewhat spooky stories mm-hmm. around that time of mm-hmm. year. But, uh, yeah, we've got some, some great stories coming up. And we've got a special Halloween episode coming your way. So we'll keep that under wraps. So keep your ears tuned. That's right. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon. Do your own time. Do your own number. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.